With bureaus in London, New York, Jerusalem, and Maria Poto, this is Shire Network News for the weekend in Sunday, July 31st, 2005. Hi, I'm your host, Tom Payne. Welcome to this 11th edition of Shire Network News, the official podcast of the Anglospheric blog, silentrunning.tv. In the program this week, we'll chat to one of Silent Running's contributors, who blogs under the name of Kiwi Bob, who's fascinated by blogging as a communications phenomenon. Who would have thought in the 1990s about blogging that I could get information from Iraq or from Australia or from um, New Zealand, the US, and engage in, in that way that I am and have influence, you know, ask Dan Rather, you know, who would have thought of these things? I certainly couldn't have. Later on, we'll go to Cairo, where some Egyptian bloggers have responded to the Sharm el-Sheikh bombings by organizing anti-terrorism demonstrations. These terrorists are doing all these terrorist attacks all over the world, and no one inside the Middle East is standing up and telling them no. That's Cairo-based blogger Big Pharaoh, who's telling the terrorists no. We'll hear from him later, including his personal endorsement of Australian Prime Minister John Howard's leadership in the War on Terror. True story. We'll also hear from Lawrence Simon with this week's Full of Crap report. Right now, though, it's over to London for the latest on the terror situation from Andrew Ian Dodge. Good afternoon. This is Andrew Ian Dodge reporting from a smoke-filled room in London, Pimlico, on the day that one group of terrorists claimed they don't want to kill any more Londoners, and it became obvious another group of terrorists wants to kill as many Londoners as possible. As you may have heard, there have been some interesting developments in Birmingham, one of which was preceded by one of the most idiotic career moves I think I've ever seen. The local mullah in Birmingham ranted about Blair and that there was no proof that the people doing this were Muslims. About the same time, or a few hours later, the police were tasering someone from his quote-unquote community who had a bomb next to him said I'll, who was about to, who I believe said, stop or I'll bloody take the rest of you with me, or something to those effects. This guy had a bomb next to him, and they've also, in the past couple days, found 16 more bombs with nails in them. Ian Blair for his credit, has made it very clear that the mistakes of last Thursday were just bad luck and that they wanted to maim and kill. And it's estimated that the bombs, the second lot of bombs, would have killed even more than the first lot. It's rather interesting. As far as you can tell, there are moderate Muslims, including the MP in Birmingham, who are trying to save their community, the reasonable ones. He's called for this idiot in Birmingham's head, by the way. Um, And it's very interesting to see. On other subjects, something has come to my attention which I think might be interesting for people to think about. Now, the 6th of this month, London won the Olympics, something which I admittedly was against. And on 7-7, we had bombs go off, killing... 56 people so far now is it me or would it be reasonable for London to say thank you very much for giving us the Olympics but it might be a better idea if we spent the money that we're going to spend on the Olympics and spend it on say oh I don't know equipment to detect explosive material in the tubes you could set them up in the entrance to all the tubes and it would go off 
before the bombs do, preferably. The technology is there. There are American companies making them. I mean, there are people who are really pleased that we went out of, over Paris because it sticks it to them. Well, wouldn't it be even more humiliating if London were to say, well, we want it, but we've decided we don't want it just yet because of the terrorist problems. Here, Paris, why don't you have it back? That would be really humiliating for the Brad French, I, I, I gather. In other news, fortunately, the uh, bright spark that I managed to get out of the, the bombings, which is the song Cry Freedom, came together rather well last Saturday and is pretty much finished. It's probably going to be one of our strongest tracks. If you can imagine Guns N' Roses um, being sung by me, then you pretty much can understand what it's going to sound like. By the way, um, various contacts have suggested to me that it probably wouldn't be a terribly good idea for me to leave the flat next Thursday because there is some estimation that they're doing them every two weeks. And they suspect that they're going to try to attack London in rush hour because they attacked in the morning, they attacked in the afternoon, and, they, and then they attack in a, ru a rush hour. It's logical if you can see that there's any logic amongst these people. Other than that, Red Ken is uh, being lambasted by various people for some of the stupid comments he said, defending suicide bombers by the Palestinians because they don't have tanks or airplanes. Um, we have Galloway becoming fairly quiet because he's off in Syria at uh, some big conference uh, where he's declaiming how, how close he is to Islam. There are some conjectures about whether Galloway will finally go whole hog and, and convert to the religion of peace and thankfully other than that not much is going on the police are doing an incredibly good job at going after these people hopefully they stop them but um, I remain rather cynical and hopefully there are no bombs but I say watch this space and if you have any loved ones on Thursday see if you can convince them to stay home because I think if they're going to attack anytime soon, it's going to be that. Anyway, this is Andrean Dodge of AndreanDodge.com, LibertyCadre.net, and DisgracefulMusic.com, signing out from fairly sunny old London. Well, terrorist bombs are going off all over the place at the moment. It's something of an Al-Qaeda summer offensive. London's now a target, as you heard, along with Iraq. Israel's being rocketed and mortared from the Gaza Strip pretty much constantly. 10% of the population of southern Thailand have moved away as a result of a campaign of head-hacking which has left around 800 people dead. Read much about that in the media? No, you haven't, have you? Well, recently bombs also went off in the Egyptian resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh, killing locals and tourists. This led to Cairo-based bloggers Big Pharaoh and Sand Monkey deciding to do something about it. They staged a demonstration. I phoned up the pharaoh and asked him what led him to do such a thing. When we went back to work after the bombings, uh, we were very uh, shocked at what happened. And that we felt that we need to do something. We need to respond to what happened in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh. Because uh, these guys, these terrorists, are doing all these terrorist attacks all over the world. And... No one inside the Middle East is 
standing up and telling them no. There is a lot of complicity with them. So we started to say that this cannot go anymore and we started to act. Even if what we did was not very big, it was just a small act, but at least we did anything. We just said no, that we are not accepting this anymore. What response did you get from from people, from passers-by and from the authorities? Well, the passers-by, we had a very positive response from the passers-by. People started looking at us, people started slowing down their cars to read what was written on our banners, people started to uh, sound their horns and beep for us. So I believe that the response was very positive from the passers-by. However, when we met the police, they wanted to stop us. They said that they supported what we did. They said that they were sad at what happened in Sharm uh, el-Sheikh. But here in Egypt, the police and the authorities don't want anything to disrupt the peace, even if what we were doing was good. But they didn't want it. You've actually organized uh, another demonstration now, and you have official permits for it? We were supposed to have another one today evening. But uh, 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 yesterday night, we heard that they simply changed their minds. Why? Well, uh, here in Egypt, we have such a huge, huge bureaucracy. Anything can happen, so they can change their minds whenever they like. They said that uh, there might be a huge demonstration, an anti-government demonstration, uh, where we were planning to set our uh, protest. So they said, okay, no, you cannot go ahead. And then they said, look, you can do it anytime and anywhere. But believe me, we are getting tired. We are getting tired from the bureaucracy. We are getting tired of contacting millions of people in the police. So I don't think that we will do it once again. That's a shame. What's public opinion in in, uh, Egypt uh, like about the global phenomenon of terrorism? Has there been a change in the way they've seen it since the bombings in Sharm el-Sheikh? Okay, uh, that's a very important question. Uh, Well, I believe that what happened in Sharm el-Sheikh will change the mentality a little bit because most of those who were slaughtered there were Egyptian. But in the past, when things started happening like in, uh, in London and in Madrid, and in Bali, the commentators here and the intellectuals here started to say, oh, this has happened because of Iraq, this has happened because of America's war on terror, they are the ones that are causing these terrorists to act. So they didn't blame the terrorists. 
I understand but there are some people at the moment who are in Egypt who are trying to blame Sharm el-Sheikh on Israel or Jews. Yes, of course. This is the first people to target your blame to when you cannot explain what happened. So when you cannot explain how some people died to slaughter other people, you blame it on Israel. This is the rule here. You run a blog called Big Pharaoh. You have other friends. One is called um, Sand Monkey. He runs his blog. There are several Egyptian blogs, and you've cooperated on this. And also your demonstrations have received quite a bit of attention. You got a, a link from Glenn Reynolds from Instapundent uh, just today, in fact. What effect is getting this publicity out in the blog's hand on you? Well, as you know, blogs add a human element in what you write. This uh, human element you won't find in the media. So when you read what other people are reporting, you tend to get it from a personal perspective. So uh, you get a more personal... Are blogs becoming a larger phenomenon in Egypt and the Middle East? Are more people writing blogs and reading them? They are increasing. There are uh, several blogs in Arabic now and they are getting attention. However, since those who can use the internet in the Middle East are relatively few, so you cannot say that it is starting to become an alternative media outlet. What's the attitude of governments in the Middle East towards blogs? Um, you get the uh, impression that the media there is usually fairly controlled and they might not want too many people talking to each other without some degree of, of government supervision. Yes, yes, this is correct. And as you know that uh, there was a blogger who got arrested in uh, Bahrain and another one he got arrested in Syria. And of course, you know what's happening with the bloggers in uh, Iran, how they are very active, how they are using this medium to communicate with each other and speak their minds out. So I believe that it is starting to have an effect among among internet users, but not among the total population. Well, I asked Big Pharaoh at the end of the interview if there was anything he particularly wanted to say, which he hadn't had the chance to. He said, yes, yes, there was. Since you come from down under, I want to tell you that I love John Howard. Uh, let me say that I think that this guy is very brave. Simply speaking, I just want to say that this guy has balls. <laughs> he was one of the first leaders to stand up and say that, yes, we must have this war on terror. Number two, he does not accept compromises, terrorist kills, and there are no excuses for what they do. They will kill if the Iraq war happened and if the Iraq war did not happen. And then when the bombings happened in London and he went to the UK, he said something really important. He said that we should not allow our countries to be dictated with what the terrorists want. We cannot allow our foreign policies 
to be dictators with what these people want. That was a huge statement. Very true. Just tell him that he has a fan in Cairo. That was Big Pharaoh, based in Cairo, giving a personal thumbs up to Australian Prime Minister John Howard. You won't find statements like that in the mainstream media here, I'll tell you that. Do go and read Big Pharaoh's blog and check out the site run by his friend Sandmonkey. You can Google those names or go to Silent Running. I'll be putting up links to the blogs mentioned in this podcast there. Time now for the indefatigable Lawrence Simon. Hi, I'm Lawrence Simon and here's the full of crap report for this week. Well, the Gaza disengagement is less than a month away, and the Palestinians are working hard to prepare for the end of the Israeli presence there. Ahmed Query has already said, well, Gaza today, tomorrow Jerusalem. Not east, just all of it. No surprise there. Mahmoud Abbas says the security forces are ready to restore law and order. Never mind that there was never any real law and order to begin with. So forget those two. Oh, and the constant mortar fire, anti-tank missile attacks, snipers, and the Vatican ignoring it all. Nothing's really changed. So what's really going on? Well, they're making flags. Lots of them. Tens and thousands of flags to fly over the abandoned settlements. PLO flags, Fatah flags, Mahmoud Abbas flags, Yasser Arafat flags. Oh, and tens and thousands of cute tablecloths they love to wear, too. (sighs) Let's check the wires. Hold on. Okay, here's a quote from the owner of Gaza's biggest flag shop. Palestinian flags will tell the world that Palestinian land has been returned to its Palestinian owners. Um, right. Which is why developers from the Emirates and Qatar are stumbling over themselves trying to buy up the land and develop it. Yeah. (sighs) This guy goes on. The work has provided sorely needed employment for hundreds of workers in the impoverished Gaza Strip, whose economy has been hit hard by more than four years of Israeli-Palestinian violence. Flag-making has been a booming business in Gaza, even during the Palestinian uprising. And this guy says his sales at his PLO flag shop increased during the revolt, thanks to orders by Palestinian militant groups for national flags and banners bearing the symbols of armed factions. He also sold Israeli flags to be burnt at the anti-Israeli rallies. wonder how many of those the PA is paying for. You know, during the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt kept up the American economy with the New Deal and the WPA. They built stadiums, roads, highways, public housing, government buildings, community centers, schools, parks. This wasn't just a work-for-the-sake-of-works program, but the people got something constructive out of it. The community benefited in the long term. The Palestinians make flags. President George Bush has promised $50 million to the Palestinians here, $350 million there, and a whopping $9 billion through his apparent fellatio friend Tony Blair at the G8. And what are they spending it on? Flags. Not new school books to replace those old ones with death to Israel and death to Jews incitement lessons. Or new schools, or new houses, or food relief. Because the UN, RWA, and WHO love to tell us how malnourished the children are. Or decent sewage systems. Or roads. Oh wait, they've got plenty of mosques. And lots of guys in hand-me-down uniforms waving shiny guns around. Uh, but no decent hospitals. Yeah, sure, it's been a long time since Sua Arafat told off Yasser. Because she couldn't have her daughter Zarwa in one of those dirty, stinking hell pits. 
But hey, a few billion dollars later, and they've only gotten worse. Hey, we all know where those billions went, after all. We read our spam. You know, it's been over 50 years since these charity cases started biting hard at Lady Liberty's teat. And they've only gotten progressively worse through their mismanagement, corruption, and completely screwed sense of priorities. They need all these things. Cry their eyes out and shriek to the rafters that they need more. And what do they do when the money starts rolling in? They make flags. Next time they come begging President Bush, tell them they can go eat flag. And if you don't, well, George, you're full of crap. Silent Running, which is the blog this podcast represents in audio form, is a group blog with writers of various ideological perspectives based all over the world. New Zealand, Australia, the United States and the United Kingdom. One of them is an old university buddy of mine who uses the name Kiwi Bob when writing for Silent Running. He's based in Wellington, the capital of New Zealand. I could tell you some stories about what we used to get up to back in the day, but I'm not sure the statute of limitations on criminal conspiracy has actually run out yet, so I better not do that. What I can do, though, is interview him, which I did recently when he was on a visit to Melbourne. I asked Kiwi Bob how he first got into blogging. I think it's fair to say you did. I actually hadn't heard of blogging until you told me about it, and uh, from that I started looking at Silent Running and other blogs, and that was actually, for me, quite uh, an, it was quite a, uh, intriguing, to start with, uh, proposition to look at these different blogs, but then the potential of blogging started to sink in, and I did a study of communications theory in the early 90s, and one of the um, great thinkers in America, as a fellow by the name of Negroponte, no relation to <laughs> the American diplomat, um, who was a leading theoretician in communications and the democratization of information. And then the internet was seen as being a major way to work around mainstream media and mainstream or traditional channels of communication, hierarchical gatekeeping. And blogging has gone the next step because not only do you have people able to access information, you have people ability to engage with the information. And this, I think, is, shows the power of blogging, which excited me the most. You've been involved in marketing and communications pretty much uh, most of your life. Do you, do you think that blogging has reached its natural level, or do you think it's still got a little bit further to develop? Do you think there's still some surprises with blogging, or the blogging will evolve into something else a bit further on down the track? Um, I would say undoubtedly yes, and, but what, where that goes, I don't know. The fact of the matter with te- telecommunications and communications is that it changes at an in- increasingly rapid rate in ways that we cannot even foresee. And so who would have thought um, in the 1980s about the Internet and the way that's impacting us today, as everyone uses the Internet from little old ladies and country towns through to students, who would have thought in the 1990s about blogging that I could get information from Iraq or from Australia or from um, New Zealand, the US, and engage in, in that way that I am and have influence, you know, ask Dan Rather, you know, who would have thought of these things? I certainly couldn't have. And I would imagine that fundamental and dramatic shifts of behaviours and communications will occur in, in ever-decreasing cycles that, that we can't even actually predict at this stage. I mean, here you are sitting in a, uh, someone's apartment room in, in Melbourne, yeah. and this is being listened to by people in the United States who are probably thinking, who are these two old tosses? Yeah. 
it's interesting, isn't it, how blogging seems to be more about two-way communication. It's not just top-down. It's not just, I am the great journalist, I am the great media person, and I will tell you <coughs> what to think or what the story is, because you're actually getting people talking back saying, no, this isn't the story. You're wrong. This is the story. Hey, these documents are fake, man. You, you never used to have... Even just yeah, ten years ago, what happened to Dan Rather would have been unthinkable. I totally agree with you, and, and we... I'm, I, there, there's certainly a relationship, and, ha and the level of that relationship, I'm not, I've, you know, uh, or the nature of that relationship, I'm yet to, to define accurately. But the reality is that traditional media, even those of us who are exceptionally cynical, still to some degree accept at face value. We read a story about something of which we have little knowledge, and we tend to think, oh, okay. I read it and I acknowledge it, I may you know, store it or I may respond to it, or not. The power of blogging is it says, hang on, I can question openly, I can respond directly, and therefore I can impact and I can influence. And this is very powerful. Um, in my work previously, where I've been in the organisations that have created news and have seen reporting that has misreported, sometimes deliberately, sometimes... Um, accidentally, through all sorts of reasons, laziness or time pressures, what have you, and seeing the frustration of that, um, realize or make me realize that uh, a lot of what we read may not be in fact accurate. And they're putting it politely. Blogging has certainly allowed, I think, um, uh, the power, the democratization of information to the, to the to the wider audiences. It's also had a big political impact, especially in terms of people who were on the right wing of politics or who weren't on the right wing of politics but discovered that the right actually had something to say when the, the media filter seemed to have be, been lifted. Certainly it was, a, it was a cry of those in perhaps conservative circles to say, we just can't get through. You know, when we report um, information, it doesn't get reported. And we therefore cannot communicate unless we spend our own money and talk directly, which is a totally inefficient way to do this. The power of the internet, the power of blocking, blogging, has allowed all sorts of people and all sorts of parts of the political spectrum, in fact, to communicate in ways that weren't uh, before possible. Even so, we're still a bunch of guys in pyjamas, you know, mouthing off and just talking, you know, to yeah, people. Do you like these ones? They're very I nice. <laughs> I like the silk. I, <laughs> yeah, but the teddy bear look, I don't know. Um, well, the fluffy bunny slippers really, you know, put the look off. Bloggers are still basically not journalists, though. We're still just ordinary people typing away, or, or in this case, you know, talking away. We're not necessarily, we don't have the, the, the resources of a large media company. We don't have lots of reporters, lots of phones, lots of money to fly people around and interview people. It's still very much a grassroots thing. It's still very much flying by the city of pants. Can blogs ever really hope to compete directly with the media, or is there some other way that they can communicate things? At the moment, it's just opinions, and what's an opinion worth? Well, opinions are worth an awful lot, depending on whoever's expressing that opinion. I think the, the issue with, with blogging, the challenge for blogging, is not, in fact, the we're amateurs, they're professionals. The challenge for blogging is to stay relevant, and there have been a lot of blogs that I've seen which have started with a hiss and a roar and slowly died out, for all sorts of reasons people get. It's hard work keeping up, um, you know, regular postings. Yes. <laughs> Spoken like a man who wrote, what, ooh, two posts in the last month? But they were good ones. So I think, I mean, the issue is relevance. Um, the blogging audience are discerning. And they're intelligent. 
and they are not going to hang around. And if you write a load of crap, they will simply stop reading. Yeah, exactly. That's very powerful. But that, the same thing in the mainstream media also have that issue. The difference is because they have a certain market share, and in some markets, say in Wellington, there's only New Zealand, there's only one daily paper um, in the, for the most part, you're somewhat limited in choice. If you want to read the newspaper, you pick up the one paper. But people will turn elsewhere if you don't talk, don't remain salient, don't remain relevant to your audience. Let's take a case in point where you managed to have quite a big impact, and that was when there was a, a series of, of grave desecrations at the Jewish Cemetery in mm. Wellington, New Zealand. Tell us about your experience and how blogging helped you with that. interesting thing is I was driving to work, and I heard on the car radio um, that the second and most significant uh, cemetery desecration had occurred. So I thought, bugger this, I'm not going to the office. I turned the car around and headed off to Macra Cemetery, and just happened to have my cell phone, which had a camera in it, and went around and took some shots, um, rushed back to work, downloaded the photographs, posted. Before any images were available on any of New Zealand's mainstream media, my images were appearing on Glenn Reynolds' Insta Pundit. So you even got some calls from uh, media organisations overseas? I got a, a call, and I think you did too, actually, um, as well, people seeking permission to run the photographs. To me, that was amazing, um, the number of hits we got, but the number of readership and, and comments that we got was also fascinating. Whether that was a powerful thing, I don't know, but it, sh- it certainly sh- showed that here was one person, one amateur, well, if you take silent running, a group of amateurs, who were acting in a way not too dissimilar to a, a mainstream media journalist. What's it like getting feedback from things that you've written on the blog? Comments in, in particular? Um, if it's not for Murray, it's usually polite. <laughs> My brother, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I mean that, that's a buzz. I think that if people have take trouble to respond, that means you've connected. And c- all communications is about having a connection with someone. And, you know, if they're inspired to write something, that's always fantastic. Well, as a result of this wonderful deep philosophizing about uh, the impetus of blogging, the impact of blogging, can we get you to write a bit more for, for Silent Running? Certainly. That was Kiwi Bob, one of the contributors to SilentRunning.tv, using his most sincere voice. And, of course, we trust him to post at least once a day after hearing that cast-iron pledge. Why, yes, he, he is in public relations. How did you guess? Well, that's it for Shire Network News for another week. This is Tom Payne asking the question that all podcasters ask. Is anybody actually listening to this? Until next week, may your God go with you.